Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is Michael D.J. Eisenberg, an attorney who shares his deep knowledge of legal technology through his blog and podcast, The Tech Savvy Lawyer. A tech whiz with a master's degree in civil engineering, Michael decided to pursue law school as a way to broaden his skill set. After working at the U.S. Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals and at the Workers' Compensation Section of the Ohio Attorney General's Office, Michael decided to start his own practice where he's focused on advocating for veterans, military members, and federal employees for nearly two decades. Throughout his legal career, he has used technology to make his work more efficient and offering tips to fellow attorneys along the way. In 2019, Michael started the blog, The Tech Savvy Lawyer, aimed to assist legal professionals with their technology skills on a broader scale. Since launching the blog, he's also recorded a number of podcast episodes under the Tech Savvy Lawyer brand. Today, Michael talks about how his grandfather influenced his career path, his decision to become a solo practitioner, using technology to save time, and his life as a podcaster. I hope you enjoy listening. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Stephen, thank you for inviting me. And the rumor is that I'm your first solo practitioner. Is that correct? I believe that to be the case. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm thrilled and honored to be that first guest, let alone a guest. Thank you. Thanks for joining. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the path that led you to be a a sole practitioner. Let's start with you. Your background is in civil engineering. Yes. You got your undergrad, you got your master's, and then rather than pursue the path of the noble profession of civil engineering, (laughs) you you decide to go to law school. What was that path? So... The lesson I sort of learned and had to come to uh, remember was my grandfather, who was a lawyer in Corinth, New York. That's where he's from. He was sort of the uh, the big man on campus in that town at the time because he had taken that little village to the state basketball championships. Oh, that'll do it. And he, you know, he was playing at the time where you took your free throw shots, you know, granny style. From uh, from between your legs, a bit lower between your legs, and threw it up, and you know you score maybe you know in the twenties, thirties at most for the entire team. You know now it's like you get into the nineties, hundreds, etc. And unfortunately, then you didn't also earn a lot of money. And his oldest brother basically convinced him that he needed to go to law school so that he could support his new family. And he went to law school and, you know, he was good at it. He just didn't really enjoy it. His dream was to become a basketball coach. So everyone keeps telling me, well, you know, Mike, you wanted to go to law school because your grandfather was a lawyer. Well, not exactly. I wanted to go to law school because my grandfather wasn't a basketball coach because that's what he really loved and that's what he had an interest in. And I had an interest in civil engineering. I was actually all set to get my PhD and I had a dissertation all lined up. I was going to do a water quality model sample of the Amazon River, but I also knew I wanted to go to law school. So I didn't want to be so narrowly focused on just one thing. I wanted to broaden my skills and that's why I went to law school. And, you know, here I am today. That's fascinating. Your your grandfather must not have had to buy a meal in town for the rest of his life. He was, he, he was very generous, uh, with everyone. Um, and as a lawyer in a small town, he may have had some, a little bit more money than most. So he, he was always generous with those around him. So it was usually, usually the other way around. He'd buy people coffee and, you know, 
perhaps lunch or two. Yeah, that's a great role model. You were fortunate. Yes, I, I, I was, thankfully. And actually, uh, I know your listeners can't see this, but if, Stephen, if you look to my top left where my finger is going, right there, that is my grandfather, Phil. That's that's the gentleman we're talking about. And what you can't see in here, as I'm pointing to the left wall here, is that there is a picture of him being sworn in as the family court justice of Saratoga County. And in it is my grandmother, uh, my aunt, uh, my ex-uncle, my mom, my dad, and the gentleman swearing my grandfather in. Of course, my grandfather being sworn in at the bottom is a six-year-old boy with a bowl cut haircut, sort of looks like Albert Ingalls from Low House of the Prairie. And my dad had put my hand on the Bible with my grandfather when he got sworn in. Oh, that's that's awesome. It's a great photo. So the question is, why why civil engineering before law school? Well, I was I was always good at science. And my mother, she wanted me to actually become a computer engineer, computer programming engineer. You know, ever since I was, you know, early 80s, when I was in my 10s, 11s, 12s, and, and teenage years, I was good at computers. I learned basic programming at an early age. Uh, I was always a, a whiz when it came to the Mac when it first came out. And one of the best classes I took in high school was actually typing. Because I've used my typing skills along with my tech skills to sort sort of help push me along and fill in maybe some of the gaps that I might be missing in other areas. But, you know, I wasn't a great pen and paper handwriter, but I could type like a whiz. And, you know, in my heyday, I was typing like 90 words a minute. You know, that's it's so interesting because one of the best classes I ever took in high school was typing as well. Yeah. And I was in high school at a time where boys didn't go to learn to type, you know, it just, right, right. you know, it's in the seventies. And uh, yet that's a skill that has stood me in good stead for my entire life. It's funny watching other attorneys who never learned how to formally type, but they kind of become proficient at the, you know, the pecking. Right. Um, it, it's, I, I find it humorous, but again, you know, it's just, it just saves me so much time. And I was doing things with computers before it became mainstream. For instance, like when I was working at uh, a government agency back in Ohio, I would type up the draft of a complaint and I would type that up and basically hand the saved disk to the secretary because she had to do certain formatting and whatnot with it, which was fine. But it was better than the secretary trying to read my handwriting. Plus, I could get more detail and more information down uh, that made it easier for them. Now, the Sort of humorous thing about that is at the time, the secretaries were like, oh, great. You know, he's doing my work for me. It makes my job so much easier. I don't have to do much. And then, of course, you know, secretaries are being phased out with law clerks and assistants because, you know, most people are doing their own typing. I mean, how many attorneys today really get a secretary? I I don't know of any, to be honest with you. I mean, Mm -hmm. you now have ratios of six to one, eight to one, 10 to one. I'd rather have a law clerk or a paralegal than a secretary. Yeah, no, I, I would too. And I think most clients would prefer you to have that as well. So what sort of critical thinking skills did you learn as a civil engineer that applied to law school? And did you find it was different than other law students? Were you approaching problems differently? So to be blunt, I had a problem shifting from engineering to law school. I knew how to write. I understood what was going on, but I was having a problem sort of putting it in the way they wanted it. And I ended up taking this class called Lose. Legal Essay Examinating Writing System, which I'm pretty sure is still out there today, and you can probably find it online. And when I took that class, it taught me, it was like a one-day seminar, and it taught me, in my mind, how to put law in an algebraic formula. So if you remember what the equation is for a line, X plus Y equals Z, 
And then, of course, if you put in the, the elements, it's AX plus BY equals CZ. So if you think of the law as a linear equation, X plus Y equals C, and then the elements of the law, you know, for instance, a tort claim, duty, breach, causation, harm. So, you know, you, you put each factor out as a separate part of the equation. And then for each variable, for each fact that goes with each part, you match them up. And then, of course, your conclusion is the Z. It doesn't really matter what your conclusion is, especially in law school. But it helped me sort of create a formulaic way of writing that just spoke to me. And of course, you know, on an essay, when you get out the, say, um, W plus X plus Y equals Z, you then flip the, the equation around and you argue the other way. So I was getting off the points that I needed. So, you know, I turned around and I graduated and here I am. <laughs> uh, that's fascinating. It's interesting how people learn the the tricks associated with going to law school, how yes, how to manage it. It's It's not intuitive, is it? No, it's not. And, you know, it's funny. I remember it was, I think, after my first year, I, I really believe in giving back. And when the law school asked for volunteers to greet the new students of the, of the new first year, I, I know I did it at least one year. I think I did it twice. But I met a gentleman who it, it was interesting. His We connected. He was a chemical engineer. He has his master's degree in chemistry. And he was you know, going to law school. He's working full time. And he brought his wife with him because at that time they were providing a class on what spouses can expect when going to law school. And she was there. And so this is like August and she is quite pregnant, you know, obviously pregnant. And I, I spoke to him. I said, by the way, you know, make sure you talk to your professors. And then he's like, why don't you talk to my professors? Well, you need to talk to your professors because your wife's pregnant and she's due during finals. So be proactive because the professors are not going to want you to like not show up for exams. And you call and say, oh, my wife just gave birth. And, he, you know, he, he thanked me for that because it turned out that basically to be true that his wife did give birth during finals. So he was all set for that. But I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. But I told him about Lou's. He took it. He loved it. And I, I bumped into him years later. He graduated valedictorian. Oh, my. Going to school at night, working full time. And I think he had two more babies during that time. Oh, my goodness. So it worked. It clicked. And, you know, you may be a fantastic writer, but this class, I really think, helped me improve it to the degree it really needed to be done. That being said, so if you're very good, it could turn you to possibly being excellent. Oh, that's fantastic. So you, you mentioned it when we started. You're our first sole practitioner. Yes. What caused you to hang out your shingle? Well, so to be clear, we talk about civil engineering as my undergrad, my master's. What I was focused on was environmental engineering. They've turned into what I was studying at the time into an environmental engineering program dealing with, you know, between water, ground, air. I was focused mostly on water and ground soil. And I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. I wanted to work for one of the green agencies like the EPA or the DOI or even DOT. And unfortunately, 9-11 happened. So 9-11 happened my last year and the two years prior, I had been basically driving out to D.C. about once a month to network and meet with other like graduates from my law school who worked in federal government agencies, green agencies, just trying to figure out how to like navigate and possibly get in. Well, unfortunately, then 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, all the green agencies were freaking out because everything was going to defense. And of course, DOT was going to be brought into Homeland Security and everyone was just freaking out about their jobs and nobody knew what was going on. And of course, that time was just not a lot of fun. 
But I graduated. I moved out here anyway. And for five years, I couldn't get a job. I mean, a job job. I got a lot of contracting work. I did have one job at a regulatory company, but that was more of a, of a kind of a meat grinder place. And the last job I had was at the U.S. Navy Marine Corps Corps Criminal Appeals. I was a contractor and I was assisting the judges there with writing briefs, doing legal research and drafting decisions. And as you, you and I both know, that sounds like a, a clerkship, a law clerkship. And basically it was, you know, judicial clerkship. And it was, and it was fantastic. The only problem was I was getting paid 20 bucks an hour. So my then girlfriend, now wife, encouraged me to start my own practice. And I dabbled a little bit in environmental law, but it was just really not moving forward for me as a, as a solo practitioner. But the last job I had in Ohio was at the Ohio Attorney General's office, workers' compensation section, you know, where we're sort of like being a gatekeeper to determine whether or not you're qualified for benefits or not. And so I took those skills and the skills I gained at the court. I started handling social security appeals. I started handling what's called military criminal appeals. And at the time, the laws had just changed with a new act passed by former President Bush that allowed veterans to hire attorneys like myself to help with the appeals process. Mind you, veterans could hire attorneys but they can only be paid like 10 or 15 bucks. That is actually a thing from the Civil War. Oh, my. So nobody's really like lining up to do that. They want to, you know, there's just no money in it. So the laws change and we can earn a contingency fee based on an award of back benefits. And that aspect of my practice just flourished. And it really helped, you know, the various computer skills that I have to help run a practice Everywhere from typing and, and faxing and e-faxing, you know, I, nobody has a fax machine anymore. And then, of course, all the online portals that you can use for filing, it just makes life a lot simpler. So the bulk of the work I do now is mostly VA benefits. I do some military records corrections issues, and I also do some what's called military medical physical examination boards, where a military member may be unfit for duty due to one or more conditions. And he goes through this process, he or she goes through this process. And mind you, the military benefits are separate from the VA benefits. So they're different, different agencies, different pots of money. Sometimes they interact a little bit. Some, it just depends on the situation. And that's what's been keeping me really busy over these plus 16 years. So let's talk a little bit about how tech plays a role in your practice, uh, Michael, because I can imagine. I, I've never been a sole practitioner. I have friends who are, and I, I know you're you're juggling a, a whole host of challenges from marketing to financial record keeping to the actual practice to representing clients to keeping. It's got to be an enormous challenge to keep all that stuff straight, particularly when your practice is flourishing. How have you used technology to solve some of those problems? Well, email's a big part between emailing with clients emailing with contractors who, you know, who are working offsite, who, you know, everywhere from a bookkeeper to I have someone running my, my uh, legal marketing online. I, you know, I have an SEO person working, a search engine optimization person working on that. I mean, I used to do all that myself, but it became, you know, as the business grew, became too time consuming. But also, so when I started the practice, I was running on a Windows machine. And problem with Windows machines, at least for me, is that after three or four years, they die. And I've been using my old Windows machine at the time. And after about seven months into it, 
the machine just died, literally died. And of course, that's never fun. So I think to myself, well, wait, I'm the boss. I can get whatever I want. And so I started getting Macs. And, you know, those things run forever until, you know, either the software just won't run on it anymore because of the new versions or um, you just want a faster processor. So about every three years, I get a new machine. And now that I'm doing some content creation, I got a, a Mac Studio with an Ultra chip. And that's that sucker cooks. And when it's not, it's because I'm pushing it. And I always think that you should buy something a little bit more than what you need. This way you can't complain later that, hey, it's running slow because of time and age and updated software. But again, email has been a huge uh, asset to me. E-faxing, which is part of email, where you'd send basically an email to a company and that will send out a fax on your behalf. Because this way, it's a lot easier to keep everything in record of prior faxes and communications you sent out. A program that I use that's only available on the Mac is called Daylight, D-A-Y-L-I-T-E, through Market Circle. They have a great Mac-based program that works as your CRM, your Client Relations Management Program, that syncs effortlessly with mail, Apple Mail. This way, I send out an email for a client. I tag it to the client, perhaps the project, perhaps a task that needed to be done. And that goes over into daylight as well. So other staff members, because I I tend to hire contract uh, law clerks, usually from the law schools, because, you know, one, trying to give back a little bit because they get great experience because I give them like hands on. This is what you're doing as a lawyer kind of thing. Of course, they can't like sign off on a lawyer, sign off on a document or provide legal advice. And this way they can look through the whole history of a case because everything's there on daylight because I tag everything as appropriate. And in the last few years, because of COVID, back in the day, I work remotely. I I usually work mostly out of the office from my house. My office is downtown DC, but because I have a federal practice, it really doesn't matter where I practice, but my office is based in DC. And back in the day, I would have like a clerk come over and perhaps do some office filing of some stuff that we have here and other little like, you know, home office Maintenance, you know, not, not house cleaning or anything like that, but just to kind of keep track of the files and keep management of the office. And then of course they could work offsite at their apartment or in Starbucks or wherever, as long as they keep a password on their computer and use VPN to make sure people aren't prying into their work. And that has been working great for well over a decade. But with COVID, I've been doing everything completely remote. We have a staff meeting once a week, usually on Zoom for an hour, you know, with Slack. I'm always available because as a solo, you're always working and it's worked out great. And I'm happy that some of my former clerks have gone off to do some really great things. Uh, I know one became a clerk for a, I think, federal judge. Another became, I think, two of my former clerks work for the VA. One works specifically for the Board of Veterans Appeals as a clerk for a judge. And, you know, I try to train the law students as to what it means to be a lawyer, not just studying the law. And usually they they fly. And I'm, I'm thrilled about that. That's great. That's got to be very gratifying. It is. It really is. So right before the, the pandemic in 2019, you start a blog and podcast called The Tech Savvy Lawyer. I see you're drinking your coffee out of a out of a, out of <laughs> some swag. Yes, <laughs> and Stephen, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you one as a thank you for having me on your podcast. So you'll you'll be seeing one in the mail soon. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll look forward to it. 
What led you to start the podcast at that moment? So I started the blog first. So technically it's the techsavvyleader.page. I say dot page versus dot com versus because that was, you know, the dot page was available at the time and I'm, you know, for marketing purposes and whatnot. So I started the blog because my wife, who encouraged me to start the practice, has days where it's like, you know, why, why did I talk you into this? Well, first of all, she didn't talk me into this. She supported me in this endeavor, which, you know, I greatly appreciate. But you should drive her nuts, or it still drives her nuts, because like she hear me on the phone, uh, you know, I spend an hour or two with another attorney trying to help them or provide some advice about, you know, using technology or like what to buy, how to use it, how to set certain things up. And she's like, you're always doing this for other attorneys. You need to figure out how to monetize that. I'm like, well, maybe. And then just prior to COVID, I, I started formulating some thoughts about doing something like that because maybe I wanted to shift a little bit of work from the practice into the blog and the podcast. And I went to that last tech show that you went to. We were talking, I think, off mic about the last tech show before COVID. And I was trying to get some ideas about, well, if I do this, what do I want to do? And what can I do? And what's out there? And the tech show provided some great answers for me. And you'll hear podcasters say, and I agree, that doing a podcast while still time involved is less of a time commitment than doing a blog. So I sort of shifted from doing as much blogs as I wanted to because quite frankly, I wasn't getting enough. I wasn't doing enough for me. It wasn't that I wasn't doing enough for the blog because it's obviously how much you put into it is how much you put into it. But I wasn't feeling I was getting enough out there. So I started with the podcast and Judge Herbert Dixon, who had retired as the chief justice uh, for the D.C. Superior Court. That's the local court, not the federal court. He had served as I think he'd served for 30 years. He was my first guest and I had met him at the tech show and I had talked to him about doing the podcast. And he, he was interested and he was gracious enough to be my first guest. And that just sort of soared from there. And I use, you know, I use programs like Calendly and Acuity Scheduling, which is a online scheduling program that syncs into your calendars to help pick times, not only with potential guests and recording sessions, but also with clients like, you know, hey, you're looking to potentially hire me as your lawyer for your VA claim. Well, I do, you know, consultations on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 2 and 7 p.m. And, you know, this is my available time. So I can send that schedule out easily. And then, of course, at the same time, I have a separate one for the podcasting. Hey, would you like to do a 20 minute pre-interview or would you like just to get into it? Here are the two links you can use. And these are the days and the times that I'm available. And of course, that syncs with the other calendars so that I can help keep my schedule clean in the sense of not overlapping appointments, which do still occasionally happen. But it allows to take a lot of the heavy lifting of going back and forth with emails and phone calls like, hey, does this time work? No, these times don't work. How about this time? This time, you know, it wastes time. And when you can save little bits of time like that, that adds up and allows you to pull back into either your practice or into having more time for your personal life or your hobbies. And that's helped out a lot. Another tool that I wanted to talk about that could have been used at any time that we've been discussing about how I run the practice is a program called Text Expander. It works both on Windows and Mac. And what it does allows you to type snippets that will then expand out automatically into formatted pieces of text information. So, for instance, if I type Michael at, it will then automatically populate out into Michael at Eisenberg-LawOffice.com. I type Michael DJ at, it will then type out Michael DJ at the page. 
Those are simple ones. If I type dot D-A-T-E, it will type out today's date. If I type out dot D-D-A-T-E, it will type out the date in a military format. If I type Sal dot S-A-L, it will populate out my entire signature line. You know, my name, my address, my phone number, my email, the confidentiality and the privilege and, you know, think green, don't print. It populates that all out for me in a snap. For instance, so if I'm on like doing some sort of Google portal and I'm submitting something and I still want to make sure I have the signature line, I don't have to worry about running and copying and pasting into the document or trying to regurgitate it myself. Those little tips and tricks save little pieces of time that add up and you get hours, sometimes days back that allows you to invest back into your your work and of course also extra time for your personal life. You know, it, it, it's such an interesting point that I know all the talk these days is generative AI and ChatGPT and Harvey and case techs and all these kind of things. Yet most lawyers don't use the capabilities of the existing technology tools that are out there. Agreed. Agreed. And, and you know, it's funny. I've, I've had prior to today in the last five days, I think I've talked to three different people. A couple of them are, were guests or proposed guests. And I mentioned text expander and it was funny. One of my guests that I had on the other day, we had talked last week and she was on this week and she's like, so one of, one of my favorite tips about saving time is using this program that you told me about called text expander. I started playing with it last week and oh my God, it saves me so much time because it adds up. Now on the flip side, AI, chat, GTP, I think it was case text amongst the other programs are great tools. They are not replacements. And that's what people need to remember. There was an article recently where I think an attorney in New York in federal court had chat GTP write his brief for him. He didn't bother to proof it. He didn't check the citations. Chat GTP made up all the citations. The judge and opposing counsel could not find any of these sites. And he had to basically plead a mea culpa to the judge saying, look, I've made a mistake. I didn't realize. And, you know, you've got to double check your work because it's like if you had a clerk write something, you you know, especially a new clerk, I think you would at least double check, if not shepherdize the case law that he or she reviews. You got to do the same thing with these other new tools as well. They're not replacements. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I saw today an order from a district judge in the Northern District of Texas who, uh, it was requiring people when they file pleadings, file certification, they did not use generative AI products. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's a mistake. I mean, so, you know, I was writing a brief a couple of weeks ago, and there was a paragraph that just didn't sound right. And, you know, I was kind of like redoing and rewriting. And it's like, this, this isn't working. So I, I, I took it, I copied it, I pasted it into chat GTP. And I said, can you, you know, I said, rewrite this paragraph to make sense. And it did. Now, mind you, it didn't have citations. It wasn't like arguing the law in a way or the facts in a way that didn't make any sense or didn't flow from, you know, prior precedent and everything that we were talking about. I checked my work. That I think is okay. But if you're going to, you know, literally write something where the chat GTP just completely generates it on its own and you don't double check the work, that's where you're going to set yourself up for failure and quite frankly, bar sanctions, because I don't think you're showing your due diligence 
in your work. And also it's, I believe it's 1.1 common eight. You're not keeping abreast reasonable understanding of how technology works. You don't have to be a master at it. You don't have to learn how to be a quote unquote programmer, but you have to at least take reasonable steps to understand. And I believe at the time that he wrote and submitted this, chat GTP was known for not giving always accurate answers. They were known for making things up. Yeah, I agree with you 100% that the tools are only as good as the people who are using them. Yes. And your point's a good one that this is this is augmentation. It's not replacement. Yes. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see what the impact. I think you're talking about the Avianza case, the airline case. I may not be pronouncing that correctly. I didn't try, so <laughs> I'll, I'll give you credit for that. But yeah, I think it was a, it was an argument about statute of limitations. And because of that, I think he technically missed the statute of limitations. And so he's he's I mean, I, I empathize with this guy, but you shepherdize your cases typically before you, you submit them, especially in ones that you're not familiar with. You no, know, that's right. It'll be interesting with the impact of instances like this, you know, bad facts make bad law, Mm -hmm. what the impact of examples like this have on the utilization and development of some of these advanced tech tools, because I can see lawyers using this as a argument. You should put these tools off the side and not use them at all. And I agree with you. That's a mistake. I, I think that's a mistake. I think you need to understand the limits of your tools before you start using them. Now, going back a few steps, There was a judge, I believe in New York State, who had been told by the attorney and the client, and the defendant, I think it was a traffic ticket issue, that they were going to have chat GTP come in and defend them. And the judge said no, which makes sense because it's still, it was, well, at the time when tested, and I think this was even before chat GTP has been known to come out with quote unquote made up or false responses. Yeah, that got a fair amount of publicity. With people talking on both sides of the fence, why shouldn't you be able to use it? Why should you be able to use it? Where, where do you see the role of generative AI going in, in technology as it relates to the practice? I think there's going to be a, a short dip in people hiring attorneys in the sense of, well, I'll just use chat GTP and, you know, the heck with it. And the problem is, of course, chat GTP is not there. Neither are all these other AI writing software. They're not there so much that you can get accurate, precise information that you need to make your arguments. Now, mind you, people are going to go and say, well, chat TPT told me that this was how you did it. And so, Your Honor, you're wrong. And of course, we all know that the person who's wrong is not the judge. Right. So, so I think people are going to get some pushback from that. And they're going to realize that, hey, I guess I got to hire an attorney. And, you know, realize that they're going to have to spend some money and they have to go over those those hurdles of realization. And once they get there, I think the upswing will continue back to the attorneys. The attorney should know by now you can't use this blindly. And I think it will improve over time, but I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I don't think it's going to happen within the next couple of years. But one day you may be able to get an AI who can argue a case, but in the same way you can get a AI to play chess but it's going to miss out on some of the nuances. And those nuances can only be done, at least today, by a person. Particularly when you're talking factual nuances. It's, uh, I, I, get the, I get the use of uh, ChatGPT, as you've described it, to help write a paragraph to give you ideas, you know, to solve the blank page problem. But 
it's still an algorithm. Yes. It's still predicting words to flow. It's not able to listen to your client. It's not able to talk to the opposing counsel. It's not able to discern those gradations of facts that make a difference in the outcome of settlement discussions or or litigation. I think there's a long time before it builds that. You sort of kind of hinted on something that we hadn't discussed yet, is that, what, 90% of cases don't go to court. They're settled out of court. And AI is not there yet. Although I think I've seen some AI mediation programs. I think those were a couple of years ago before chat GTP came uh, more into light. I don't think it's there yet. And like you said, there's going to be certain nuances that a computer program can't do. For instance, what is it your client really wants? You know, he or she is suing for a hundred million dollars because of whatever. When deep down, they've only wanted this one thing back. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm yep. really talking very vaguely, but you know, it, you you miss that out on the conversations. And also, there's the client management of expectations. You know, again, you know, I'm suing you for a hundred million dollars because you did this. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, you got to realize your case may only be worth you know ten dollars, and the money that you're going to put into it is going to be more than $10. And of course, you got to worry about costs that the Lord may not cover, that Lord knows the AI won't cover, you know, court fees, court reporters, filing fees, that you still have to appear in court. And quite frankly, I think it'd be kind of hard to be arguing a case in court. And then if you don't have really good internet Wi-Fi, you know, oh, well, Your Honor, I'm sorry, my chat TGP went down. Can can we just stay the case for, you know, a couple days? Yeah, that's an awkward conversation to have, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, I... I thankfully have never had that kind of problem. Well, touch wood, you won't. We've hit our time, any of it. We've sort of run a little bit over. I appreciate you making the time, Michael. It was a great conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you ever need anything from me, please, you know, I'd be thrilled to come back. Or if you need anything from me as the tech savvy lawyer, or if you're a veteran who's been denied benefits or an effective date or a rating, please feel free to give me a call. And check out the show notes. We'll have links to both the firm as well as tech savvy lawyer. Thanks again, Stephen. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.